Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Memphis Listening Lab proudly supports WYXR. They provide a curated collection of music and music history, a forum for music-related talks and performances, and a music education, appreciation, and experimentation space located in Crosstown Concourse. The lab is open Tuesday through Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can find out more information on their Instagram page at Memphis Listening Lab or on their website at memphislisteninglab.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. And this week, I'm welcoming a longtime friend, which is Daryl Cobbins. Daryl is the founder and CEO of Universal Commercial, uh, a local commercial real estate brokerage firm. And the firm is celebrating its 15-year anniversary, which is kind of the, I guess, a news hook, as it were. But um, there's all kinds of interesting stuff to talk about. Daryl's worked on a lot of really great projects. So welcome to Memphis Metropolis. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So Daryl, you're a, you know you're born and raised in Memphis, and so just give us a little bit of your backstory and and particular. I want to talk in more length about you know how you got really interested in commercial real estate but you kind of came from a real estate family a very interesting your grandfather did a real interesting project and so tell us a little about growing where you grew up and then your grandfather's project and how that um you know t- piqued your interest in real estate sure. well uh born and raised in memphis uh, most of my formative years were spent in the white haven area uh sort of white haven westwood uh, territory, which is considered Southwest Memphis. And uh, a short portion was in actual South Memphis, uh, living on South Parkway, directly across the street from Coletta's. So I, I enjoyed a lot of great pizza growing up, but um, was was um, raised primarily by a single mom who uh, my parents divorced when I was two. And um, I saw my father and reconnected with him once I was 15. And so my my mother's parents played a very, um, I really can't even describe it in words, but just a very crucial role in our upbringing, raising, uh, rearing, and, um, you know, and just making us who we are today. And um, we actually ended up living with them from the time I was 10 until I was about 16. So, you know, we were... um, you know, we were all in the same house together. But uh, my grandfather uh, was a prominent real estate. And so there was a gentleman by the name of Wallace E. Johnson, who was one of Kimmons Wilson's chief lieutenants that Bill Wolf knew. And so he and my grandfather developed the idea of building a neighborhood or a subdivision uh, for African-Americans who were just now getting good jobs and were really moving into the professional ranks. And they got financial backing from Wallace Johnson, and they struck out to create this neighborhood and community called Lakeview Gardens. 
And it was in the southwest part of Memphis, which today doesn't seem that far out. But back then it was it was the hinterlands. And uh, and so they got to working on that and moving it forward. And after maybe a year of, of building and, and selling homes, unfortunately, uh, Bill Wolf got killed in a car accident. And so my grandfather had to sort of pick things up and keep advancing the ball forward. And I think little did he know that it would it would lead him to prominence. I think it was fortuitous in, in his life. And so he carried that that development forward through several different phases and ultimately ended up being a, a 614 home uh, neighborhood called Lakeview Gardens that many prominent African-American people uh, at that time and aspiring young African-American people bought their first homes um, in that particular neighborhood over probably a 10 or so year period. And it still stands there today, I think, as a testament to to him and his um, vision and, and tenacity and being able to carry that forward. So I grew up in his house and around him and seeing him as a real estate entrepreneur. Uh, he had a company called Peace Realty, where he really gave a lot of prominent African-American real estate people their start. Uh, People like Lawrence Johnson, uh, Reginald Payton, uh, all who have gone on to do great things here in town. And he helped start a, the Memphis chapter of what is the equivalent of like the, the African-American version of the national association of realtors. This organization was called the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, also known as NAREB. Yep, I've had them on my show yeah. to talk about home ownership. So how many, um, was this in the 1960s? Yeah, primarily, yes, 60s and 70s. So, so, you know, after World War II, a lot of, you know, white sub- subdivisions, real estate excluded Blacks, mm-hmm. and it was very difficult, you know, because of... Um, Covenants and a lot of people had difficulty getting mortgages. Of course, there was a tremendous amount of lending discrimination, as there still is, mm-hmm. um, but, but I think more codified and blatant back then. So, so were there partnerships with like the tri-state banks or those kind of partnerships? Um, Sounds like those would have been really critical yeah. to because mortgages are such an important mm-hmm. part of that. Equation. Yeah, definitely. Tri-State Bank, uh, Universal Life Insurance Company, uh, did a lot of mortgages back then. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of patterned um, or at least borrowed the name Universal for my company when I started it in, in tribute to Universal Life Insurance Company. I, I went to the Memphis room at the main library and asked them to give me everything they had on Universal Life Insurance. That's probably a pretty fat folder. It was more than a folder. It was <laughs> volumes and volumes of, of information. But I spent a couple of days there just reading and making sure that I wanted to use that name and, and make it mean something again. And um, and that's what I ultimately decided. But to answer your question, yeah, um, you know, those relationships with the black banks like Universal, I mean, black banks like Tri-State, insurance companies like Universal, all were extremely crucial in in making a project like that a success. And it actually won a number of National Home Builder Awards. I did a paper on it in college that um, I'll share with you. It's really, really interesting. You know what? I'd love to read it. 
I'm, you know, interested in that kind of development history. And for sure, I'd be interested in it. It's such a great story. So, um, I mean, it sounds like, you know, the apple didn't fall that far from the tree, as they said. But but you, I think you went into commercial real estate pretty quick, within a few years of getting out of college, I think. And yeah. what's, so what, um, what made you just d- decide that that was the career you wanted to pursue? Or was it just, did it, I mean, in my career, a lot of my careers have been just, you know, being an opportunity coming along. It hasn't been as planned out as maybe some people would be. You seem like more of a planner, but what appealed to you about getting into that industry? Well, I knew um, in some way, shape or form, I felt like I would always end up in real estate some type of way. Um, I didn't have a passion for residential real estate, even though I grew up around it. And so my second job out of college, I was working at the Chamber of Commerce in fundraising. And so there I was really exposed to economic development, uh, all the a lot of the behind the scenes things that you that you don't see uh, that help propel job creation, business growth, business expansion. And in my role, I had to go out and sort of market the chamber to get companies to join and to invest in the in the chamber's mission, which is an abstract when you think about it, you know, invest in the chamber and we'll create this environment and things will get better for your business. And so one of the the things I used to do to prospect was I, I would read the Memphis Business Journal every week. And it seemed like every week there was an article about commercial real estate in some way, shape or form. Um, and back then, before uh, before the Internet had fully taken off, they used to have an insert within the business journal called Space. And it would have I remember. Yeah, that. it would have an article or two in there about a project or about a transaction. And then it would have these um, and being being at the chamber, you, I came in contact with a lot of great commercial real estate people. And just sort of, sort of started picking their brains about the industry and what it was like. And and so I tend to think ahead as it relates to my life and career as best I can. And I sort of made up in my mind that I thought that that was a path that I wanted to pursue. And so I went and got a real estate license just after work. I would go to go to class through the University of Memphis's continuing education program, the pre-licensing uh, uh, program and went for about six or seven weeks because my, my theory was, okay, I need to have this license so that if an opportunity arises, I don't have to say, give me eight weeks to go get licensed. So I did that really not knowing what was out there or what, what opportunities there might be, but I figured there might be something. And, um, and you wanted to be ready. I wanted to be ready. And long story short, um, I ended up going to work for a company at the time. It was called Commercial Tennessee. And uh, today it's called Cushman and Wakefield Commercial Advisors. Uh, Larry Jensen, the founder of that company, was a chamber board member. We had developed a relationship and ultimately he hired me in 2001. Um, and that began my commercial real estate career. So after you, so you're so Universal. First of all, I didn't know that Universal Commercial was named after Universal Life, and that's extremely cool. Mm-hmm. I think I, I remember when you formed the company and and wondered about the name, 
And um, I thought it might be, you know, because you had a, a, a big vision. Mm-hmm. And but I didn't know about that connection. Yeah. Yeah. So that's I like that. I like that historic connection a lot. Um, but you so 15 years ago, you decided after being at commercial advisors for several years, you decided to start your own company, which is um, I mean, starting your own business is a big undertaking anyway, but commercial real estate is a a big money game, I guess. <laughs> and um, and so what what did you just want to be an entrepreneur? Or did you think there was a niche to be filled or all of the above? Well, I had um, entrepreneurial aspirations. Um I just wasn't a hundred percent sure how I should go about it. Um, I just, I, I, from everything that you read and that you see people interviewed, you know, you think you got to have a certain amount of money saved up and you got to have a business plan and you got to have all these things um, already together. And, um, you know, at the time I was maybe six years into my commercial real estate career, I had just finished, getting my MBA from the University of Memphis and um, wasn't necessarily looking to to step out. But um, <clears throat> I was approached by a group who had bought the Sears Crosstown building and they wanted someone who could focus on helping acquire real estate around the building uh, so that they could control the territory. And uh, they said, why don't you start your own company and we'll be your first client. And that could be your your launching pad into entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I went home that evening, talked to my wife and we didn't have a child then. And she said, well, I don't know why you would not do it, because the people who've approached you, they're reputable. You've known them a long time. You know, you can trust them. We don't have children right now, so you can take the time to to really, you know, put the energy into it. And so that was roughly June of 2007. And uh, and so I stepped out there uh, with no business plan and no <laughs> and one client. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I equated uh, the analogy that I've used to describe it is running down the street and trying to put your pants on at the same time. Because you know? <laughs> I mean, well, when you think about, it, I guess commercial real estate, you don't necessarily need access to a lot of capital on the brokerage side, but you need a lot of relationships. Right. And it seemed like you probably, I mean, since I've known mm-hmm. you, you've right. been rich in relationships, and I'm guessing if you worked at the chamber, you probably had mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of prospects in your pipeline. Yeah, I was fortunate. I remember when I worked at the chamber, they had this billboard campaign that said uh, relationships build business. So they'd have two local business people on the billboard together, you know, sort of highlighting their relationship. And uh, and they had those all over town. And so that that relationships always stuck with me. And I tell people to this day that I don't really use the word networking because it, to me, it oversimplifies it and says, okay, I'll give you my card. You give me your card if I need you, whatever. It's super, it can be superficial. Right. And so relationship building is much more intentional, 
much more um, long, sort of longitudinal and, and, and future oriented. And it's focused on how can I help you today? Um, how can you help me today? If that's not possible, then we'll still continue to be in touch and we'll still uh, continue to cultivate the relationship. And if I can identify opportunities for you and you can do the same for me, then, you know, that's the, the true essence of a relationship. Even if there's no business to be done, there's a relationship there. And so I've always tried to sort of operate with that, that philosophy. And uh, certainly when I stepped out uh, as an entrepreneur, it was beneficial that um, I had built some relationships along the way. Well, that makes sense to me because, you know, in commercial real estate, it's not like these quick quick transactions. I mean, there is a, a transaction or a series of them at some point, but they're bigger multi-year projects. And like you said, you know, develop real estate developers who might be clients will have multiple projects over the mm-hmm. years. So even more so, it's not like just meeting someone, yes, for a quick, I need to buy a car who can get me a good deal? There's a lot more to it than that. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM at Crosstown. And we're talking to Daryl Cobbins, who is founder and CEO of Universal Commercial Real Estate Brokerage and who's celebrating their 15-year anniversary. And we're just talking about Daryl's career trajectory and a little bit about the commercial real estate business. So Daryl, now that you've you're you've reached the 15 year milestone um you know you mentioned crosstown but i know you've been involved just tick off a couple of projects big projects that big projects of any size Mm -hmm. that you're and i'm sure there have been a lot that are that you're particularly proud of your involvement with yeah you know somebody was asking me that i was showing uh, a property last week and um this prospect asked me about some of the things I've been involved in. And I think, you know, after 20 years in the industry now, I had to sort of think, what, what all have I done? <laughs> Just because it, some of it becomes um, distant memory after time. But nonetheless, uh, of course, the, the Crosstown Concourse project is, is probably at the top of the list. Um, you know, when I got involved with it, uh, it was initially meant to be a new home for Crichton College, which is now not non-existent, but they were trying to look at it as a, a, a vertical campus, like an NYU type of setup for um, for Crichton, and that ended up not being feasible. But um, and then of course Tart Richardson came along and and reignited the idea of it being sort of an arts and focus, and ultimately ended up accomplishing what you see today. So my involvement with that project literally began in 2007, 15 years ago. And, um, and it was, you know, extremely rewarding to, to go back and see what it's become today. Um, other projects, um, you know, it's not a, a, a glossy, sexy project, but uh, I collaborated with CBRE on helping the city of Memphis determine whether it should accept or purchase the state office building that um, now houses MPD and HCD and a couple of other operations there. That was a. And that's right across the street from city hall. Yeah. Right between city hall and the county government building. Um, And that was uh, probably a two year long process of really studying and making sure that it was, um, that they weren't accepting a money pit. <laughs> so, 
but other projects um, right now working with uh, Liberty Park, which is the uh, fairgrounds redevelopment. There's a, a sports and entertainment concept uh, that's, I'm sorry, sports and events concept that is um, being built. And you can see the steel coming out of the ground now. Uh, further north, closer to central on the site, there's what we call the private development space where there'll be, you know, entertainment venues, restaurants, apartments, uh, spaces for businesses and um, and all of that and a hotel and all of that will be closer to Central Avenue and uh, CBU. Another project that I'm really proud of is um, recently we helped Junior Achievement of Memphis in the Mid-South. They had a building that they had owned downtown for about 20 years that um, had become a little bit um, obsolete for them from a programmatic standpoint, and they wanted to be out in the community. So we helped them sell that building uh, about a year ago. And later uh, in the year, we helped them lease the former Save-A-Lot that's at the Binghampton uh, Gateway, the Gateway Shopping Center. And so now they'll breathe new life into that facility that was sit, that was going to sit there for a while, dormant, and bring their programs to that neighborhood and that community that, that aligns with so many other great programs that are happening over there in, in Binghampton. And so, um, so, just so, so I, I always liked that downtown building. I was only in there a couple of times. I always thought it was really cool. And they were a little bit pioneers going in oh, yeah. downtown. So, so I was, um, I hope I, I'm, I was sorry to see they moved downtown, although I'm guessing for that kind of an organization being, in an area where there's more parking for families and yeah and it it allow them to have a, um they they're investing in a more technology friendly state of the art sort of programmatic offering uh and bringing some new programs into that space so having one singular level where you can do all those great things um and be accessible to the community i think is a huge win for them uh and we also were involved with um the Memphis Music Initiative. They took the old firehouse there near FedEx Forum and have um, made that their new home. So we were instrumental in helping them locate that as well as negotiate um, the lease there that transformed that building. I wish you could have seen it beforehand, but it's uh, it's the Taj Mahal now compared to what it was before. Well, they did a, there was some kind of a, um, you know, a pop-up, Mm. created place yeah. making there several years ago yeah. and um, a very cool space. I love, you know, historic preservation and these adaptive reuse projects. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, really nice building. So I'm glad I didn't, I don't think I knew that that had been repurposed in that way. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Well, since I've known you, since you've been in this business, I feel like you've helped. A, you've also just really helped a lot of organizations, smaller ones like Community Lift. Mm -hmm. And you've seen, you, you're very committed to, I'm sure they're, um, you know, not particularly lucrative, but, you know, community development organizations need real estate help as yeah, well. Yeah. And, um, and I definitely have seen you do that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's just an extension of, you know, a lot of the service that I've done you know, serving on different boards and being involved in a lot of initiatives over the 
past 20 plus years, um, you know, you get called upon and asked to, to bring some leadership or advice or counsel or guidance to other organizations. And so, you know, you know, I mentioned junior achievement, but there are a host of others um, like my city rides. We helped them recently by a former. Oh, one summer. Yeah. That's a great, great project. So, uh, so, you know, those types of projects are really doubly rewarding to me because you know that by virtue of your expertise assisting that organization, it's more than just a transaction. It is assisting in the sort of furtherance of their mission. And, um, and that, to me, is what ultimately makes Memphis better. Um, For sure. Those organizations can thrive and flourish and operate at an optimal level. So, you know, if I can help through real estate, help further that, then, you know, I'm always down for that. And I I really get a lot of um, fulfillment out of it as well. I can imagine. And we don't really have time to talk about this today because I have a couple other questions, but also you serve on a million boards. <laughs> so I work with you in that capacity, especially in the arts. And I associate you with boards in the arts and culture mm-hmm. arena. And so that's that's a big part of the relationship, making yeah. the community better, all of that stuff. Yeah. So, Daryl, you know, there's even though that Memphis is you know, 60, 65% black, there's, you know, there are definitely industries in Memphis that are, you know, white and male and, you know, investment advisors is one, but I, in my mind, commercial real estate is one of those that has, and I think you observed, I read an article about you in Memphis Magazine, you know, you know, not only, you know, white and male, but, you know, everyone has the same last name. Mm-hmm. It's these old families. And so it must have been, I mean, when you got in the industry, I'm sure it was even more so. But, um, you know, I know some people in commercial real estate before you, in addition to you, and, you know, people want to see that change. Mm-hmm. Um it's hard. So what do you, you think the industry is making progress and what do you think it's, what is, um, what's got to change to change the picture of how that industry looks and is represented in the community? Yeah, I will say uh, it looks better today than it did 20 years ago when I got into the industry. And like I said, I got in, in 2000, and one. So we're not talking about the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, but I think we still have a long way to go. I think the the progress on that front has been, you know, I would call it glacier-like because, you know, now having been in the industry 20 years, you know, the the veterans of that era have now moved on and, you know, my contemporaries and folks a little younger than me are now the veterans of the industry. And um, we're not where we should be. I mean, I'll just be quite frank about it. And the the thing that needs to change is um, more companies need to be willing to open up more opportunities to diverse populations. And then support and then support them in the world. Absolutely. And I'll tell you the the greatest benefit that I had uh, that I think has contributed to my longevity was that I was brought into a a great company with folks who 
were intent on making sure that I learned and that I was mentored and that I was taught and I was guided. And it wasn't, you know, sitting at a chalkboard every day, somebody writing something down for you, but it was through the work. It was through working on projects and transactions with them that I learned the process, that I learned how you interface with clients, that I learned how you sort of guide and navigate a client through uh, a process. And so that same thing that was done for me 20 years ago could easily be done anywhere else in town. I mean, it's not a, you know, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's being done for young white guys every day. And so to the extent that those same um, opportunities and that same mentoring and guidance can be provided to, to folks who aren't young white guys, then that's when we will see and make real progress. And not that everyone who gets an opportunity will stay in the industry or stay at a particular company. But, you know, through that um, evolution and that process that hasn't been occurring heretofore, uh, that's the only way that, that it'll change and that we'll see a different picture 20 years from now than what we see today. Well, do you think it's, I mean, going back to sort of the family names, is part of it is just it's kind of the good old boy network and, um, and you know, your son's fraternity buddy is getting out of school. He's interested. You've got an open. He just kind of slides in. And um, because that because that industry is, you know, it's uh, a lot of wealthy yeah, people yeah. in that industry and who um, I don't know. I'm just I'm just wondering about the paths, yeah. you know, how to how to make the paths better um, other than just diversity programs. Yeah. Well, the way that I've seen a lot of folks get into the business over my career it is very uh, non-traditional in the sense that I've never seen a firm put an ad out anywhere that we're looking for a junior broker or a junior associate. Uh, to your point, it does often come through existing relationships, family members, church members, college alumni groups, uh, country clubs, you know, just all those different things. And so that makes it hard for diverse candidates to get noticed if you aren't in those circles or if you aren't in those um, in those pathways. And so that's why I say it has to be intentional and important to the organization, because if it's important to you as a leader of a business or a group of leaders or partners in a business, then you'll recognize that the pathways that exist for one group are very different and, and non-existent for some, some other groups. And so you have to be intentional about, um, about making opportunities known and available and, um, and actually pursuing diversity. So, you know, I think a lot of times people believe that, you know, diversity, equity, those things are something that need to occur out in society and somewhere else rather within their own confines. Uh, but if it's important and, and organizations take an internal look at themselves, then they would determine that there are some great colleges and universities and graduate programs here in town where if you're looking for diverse candidates, 
it's a phone call or an email away. And uh, if you want it to change, it will change. So it has to be intentional. Well, you, well you know, I think in the, you know, in the wake of, um, you know, George Floyd's murder, there's been, a you know, a lot more conversations, certainly in boardrooms around the country um, about that issue. But I don't know whether, I, I don't have a sense for whether it's, I mean, these are not huge companies. I mean, they're probably, you know, 30 people. And I don't know whether those conversations, I mean, they're happening in, you know, Ford Motor Company, and there's pressure from employees to do better. Um, and, you know, those companies are busy hiring senior vice presidents of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, but I don't know whether it's that's translating down, those hard discussions are translating down to smaller businesses in Memphis or elsewhere? Well, I think part of it, too, is, um, you know, for those clients, like some of those companies that you mentioned, those companies are clients of these smaller organizations and these firms and these local offices of, of larger firms. And, and so ultimately, the client could potentially say, we want our service providers to demonstrate the same commitment that we have um, by virtue of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We want to see, you know, what your staff looks like or what your hiring practices are or what does your senior leadership look like? Um, I think those questions can also assist in prompting change. Um and not just what partner can you bring in, right. not just what partner can you bring in to sort of make that appearances mm -hmm. look better. I mean, yeah. I mean, if I'm not, you know, I'm not a person who is a customer for those services, but if I was, that would be important to me. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. So, okay. Well, and real estate, I mean, real estate is such an engine of economic change that um, to the extent that um, you know more opportunities are available for African American Memphians, um, you know, changing all, you know, bringing that to all aspects of re real estate just seems like it's critical. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I've learned over the course of my career that commercial real estate professionals, particularly, um, have a very key role in helping guide investment um, and capital and jobs uh, just by virtue of their knowledge and understanding of the, the local terrain. And to the extent that you can have uh, more diversity and folks who come from different backgrounds in the industry, then hopefully that could help uh, bolster some areas where investment has not occurred heretofore. And uh, for some folks, that may be foreign territory in terms of them really seeing and understanding the, the intrinsic value and assets that exist in um, communities that have probably not been uh, considered at the forefront of those opportunities up to now. Well, actually, you're making an excellent point because um, you know, when you first joined, you know, commercial advisors, <clears throat> I'm guessing, you know, based on your life story, you had, you saw opportunities that 
people who had never been to some of these places, you saw opportunities that other people did not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, my, my dad's family is from North Memphis. My mother's family is from Southwest Memphis. Um, my brother and I went to Catholic schools in South Memphis growing up. Uh, we caught the bus matter to MUS every day for four years. So I've seen every corner of Memphis there is to see. And um, <clears throat> and I think that experience uh, provides a unique perspective. Uh, and you may see opportunity where some folks don't see it. Uh, but then also you're expected from your clients to be a guide and an advisor. And so if they're looking for, you know, a certain property type or a certain um, target market to the extent you have deep and thorough knowledge of the community as a whole, you can be a, a expert guide and advisor to them on uh, where they should go. And you ideally will have relationships that could be advantageous to them and whatever their interests are in a particular geography or section of town. I know from your work over the years, from a community development standpoint, you know that there are certain, I won't call them gatekeepers, but certain communities have their champions uh, (laughs) that you have to check in with if you want to do anything. And so having that knowledge and, and relationships and being able to know, you know, how to navigate whether you're in East Memphis, downtown, South Memphis, or North Memphis, I think is a valuable um, skill set. Definitely. So, well, congratulations on making it to 15 years, and I'm sure you've got many more years of success left with Universal Commercial. That's a major accomplishment for any any new any business startup, but um, particularly in that field, just. Um, just congratulations. Yeah, one thing I'll share with you that I, I, <clears throat> I don't mention it much publicly, but I do in conversation with people is, uh, and this will be in my book when I write it 20 years from now, <laughs> is uh, I began my career in July, June, July of 01. And that was literally three months before September 11th. So okay. my first probably three years in the business, it was it was rough. Uh, because the economy had come to a screeching halt and people were afraid to travel and all of that. And so you fast forward to 2007 and I started my company a year before the 08 meltdown. And so thankfully I had that first client, but had to navigate the new world that existed uh, after the 08 meltdown. And so part of my thankfulness for being able to reach the 20 year point and 15 years as an entrepreneur is being able to look back and see, you know, how professionally I was able to navigate and make it through those tough periods that people don't talk about a lot. Uh, people re- rarely talk about the, the downside of their, um, their journey, but um, rather than throw in the towel Uh, What was at the forefront of my mind was conversations like this today is being able to to talk about making it through that and being an example to young people, um, especially those of color who are charting a course that there's not a clear path for. 
but being able to be here 20 years and and be an example and now becoming a mentor to a lot of these folks who are looking to break into the industry and, and begin a career in commercial real estate. You know, I feel very fortunate to um, to be here 20 years later and be able to have that conversation. Yeah, that's that. I didn't even think about that, about um, well, I didn't know about September 11th, but for sure, um, some challenging times in there. And I'm sure more to come mm-hmm. given the you know cyclical nature of the news cycle and the economy. Wow. Yeah. Well, you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Daryl Cobbins, who's the founder and CEO of Universal Commercial. And Daryl, it's just great to have you on the show to hear your story and hear your thoughts. And um, thanks so much for coming. I on. appreciate the opportunity. I wish you all the best as you continue to have these great conversations that inform all of us and make us all better citizens. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Support for WYXR, including our 2022 stereo sessions, comes from Tamburino. Tamburino's staff of IT specialists help businesses with technology setup and support. Details at tamburino.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the second half, or really the third, fourth quarter, I should say, (laughs) of, um, like it's a football game, of Memphis Metropolis, WYXR. 91.7 FM and to carries over the finish line to extend (laughs) the analogy. um, I'm joined with Charlie Santo, who's a professor in the city and regional planning department at university of Memphis and one of our regular commentators. So welcome back, Charlie. Thanks, Emily. Glad to be here to run the two minute drill. So the, um, you know, so actually someone suggested having Daryl Cobbins on and I was surprised I hadn't thought about it myself sooner because he's, I've known him, you know, not well, but I've known him for years and he's um, just a person I've always really admired for, you know, his entrepreneurship, his leadership in the commercial brokerage industry and his, you know, just commitment. We talked a little bit about this, about um, working with, you know, really a community focus, working with smaller organizations. One of the things I didn't ask him about, but he's working with Tone and their work to, you know, redevelop the Orange Mound, um, the tower in Orange Mound, which, you know, uh, includes, you know, helping finance and property acquisition. That's a very big project. And that's the kind of project he just takes on and doesn't, doesn't always get a lot of visibility for it, nor does he want it. I think that, you know, he wants the, the, you know, the light to reflect on the folks that are leading the effort, but he's just, he's behind the scenes in a lot of really important neighborhood revitalization projects. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he's such an iconic Memphian um, that, you know, as I was saying before we started the recording, you could do five different episodes uh, just on things that Daryl's been involved in. Um, so really fascinating conversation. 
So, you know, at the end, Charlie, we talked, he and I talked about the, really the lack of diversity in commercial real estate, commercial brokerage. And I mean, I think real, real estate, the real estate industry itself has challenges in that area, but that segment of the industry, it's, it's just very dominated by middle-aged and older white men. Hmm. And, you know, you look at the web pages for those companies and there's some nice folks and I know at those firms, um, nothing against anybody personally, but it's, um, you know, there's very, there's little if any diversity and, and, um, but that kind of made me wonder if, you know, about the planning profession, which I'm, you know, certainly kind of, sort of a member of, um, and I said, since I'm interested in planning and I have actually have a degree yeah, we're, we're um, and, um, <laughs> And so how do you think the, I mean, how do you think the planning profession is doing in that regard? And then sort of, you know, another related question is how do I know it, I know diversity is important to you personally, especially being in Memphis. How do you approach it in terms of not only um, recruitment, but also you know, the curriculum, the education. Yeah. As I have um, five questions. So <laughs> all right, sorry. <laughs> five questions. And two but minutes. I mean, commercial real estate is not the only part of the development equation that has diversity yeah. problems. I mean, a lot of probably engineering and, you know, we could probably go around, but I was thinking about planning. So since I feel like I'm yeah. I mean, it's, it. it's incredibly, it's incredibly important in planning um, to have, to have diversity because, you know, if you're going to get a degree in planning and go out and, and work in the field, you're likely to be working in an urban setting. You're likely to be working for neighborhoods or with neighborhoods that have faced this investment in decline, often due to, to bad public policies of the, of the past. So you're likely to be working with minority groups. Uh, so we need to be a discipline that looks more like the people that we serve. Uh, and those of us who don't look like the people that we serve need to know how to be culturally aware. Um, and to be honest, the, the profession is not anywhere close to where it needs to be in that regard. Um, the profession is about 60% male, 76% white, um, only 5% black. Uh, and I think it's, to me, it starts with the pipeline, which is, you know, academia, which is the, the, the training ground um, for, for future planners. And this is something that we talk about all the time in, in academia. So I've, I've served recently on the board of the Association of Collegiate Schools of Planning, which is our academic uh, planning association. And, you know, every one of those conversations as a board is, has included uh, diversity as an issue and trying to figure out how to, how to, how to do better. Um, and we've seen the, the numbers uh, improve over the years, but they're still not great. So planning master students are 54% white, um, but only 11% black. And so, you know, you've got uh, a, a, a good chunk of foreign students, Asian students. Um, and so there's still a lot, a lot of room for improvement there. Uh, and so I think, you know, every, I think every department is, ha is thinking about this. Uh, I know that we, we focus on it in our department. It's part of our, our core values, uh, you know, in our strategic plan, we've got goals around diversity. Um, well, let me ask a follow-up question. Um, 
before you talk more about the curriculum, so is it, um, does, does the focus on the pipeline need to be, go farther back to undergrad? Because I know that, you know, and probably most people don't know that, you know, planning is really a field where, you know, you get a master's. I mean, there are a few schools that have bachelor's in planning, but it's the, the master's is the degree that people entering the profession get. And, and those, most of those people come from other fields. They come, a lot of them come from geography mm-hmm. and they come from anthropology. And I mean, you know better than I do what the feeder looks like, but um, are those, are those disciplines have the same challenges? And does the, does the, does the pipe need to be primed? The pump need to be primed at that level too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it actually goes back earlier than that. So we try as much as we can to, to reach into high schools, middle schools, you know, anytime we have an opportunity to, to have a program where we can participate with, um, with students at an earlier age, because I think it's for the discipline, it's about exposure. I mean, this is planning. It's not a field that people, there's no TV shows about planning, right? People know about doctor, lawyer, not not yet. (laughs) Um, there was a planner on Parks and Rec for the first season or two. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think it has to go back uh, farther than that to, to introduce people to the concept. Uh, so we do we try to do uh, try to do a lot of that in terms of recruiting. We reach out directly to the HBCUs uh, in and around the area. And we do you know, we do a pretty good job of getting students from Tennessee State. Um, and we are trying more to reach uh, freshmen uh, at the U of M so that that honors forum that I've developed uh, teaching the city and song was an opportunity to, to hook people um, introduce planning and, and community development to, to folks um, before they really start to think about what they want to major in. Um, so yeah, those, those recruiting things I think are important. Um, but I, to me, it goes beyond just recruiting, right? We, we want to try to increase the number of, of minority students that we have in the program and I think we need to think more, more holistically about what we mean by diversity inclusion. So it's not just race and ethnicity, but it's also thinking about people from different socioeconomic status, gender, sexuality, um, all kinds of different things that make up you know, a diverse population. Um, but it's also about preparing students to work with diverse populations, with communities of people who look different than they do and have experienced the city differently. So it's about you know, creating that, that right climate and that right learning environments, having a diversity of perspectives and voices in the room. Um, and a lot of that has to do with how you structure the curriculum. Um, and so, you know, we've, we sort of have doubled down and this is something we've been doing, but, you know, in the, in the response, our kind of civil rights awakening after the murder of George Floyd, um, when a lot of organizations were just kind of putting out statements we decided that we weren't going to put out a statement. We were going to sort of redouble our efforts. We meaning uh, the city regional planning department. Yeah, yeah, at the University of Memphis, our department. Uh, wanted to make a concerted effort to, to amplify black and minority voices and, and emphasize anti-racist messages, messages in, our, in our syllabi and introduce, you know, uh, components that, that sort of educate our students on the roots and impacts of systemic racism. Um, and so... You know, we we do things. We try to make sure that our students know what's unique about our city and about our community. That you know, we we are a majority black city, and that's not necessarily unique to Memphis. There are lots of majority black cities, but what is unique is is the civil rights legacy of our city. Uh, what is unique is that Memphis has been a majority black city for much longer than than people might realize. You know, we're not talking about 
the 60s and 70s as a product of, of white flight. We're talking about, you know, in and around the time of the Civil War, when thousands of enslaved um, African-Americans fled from farms and plantations and settled in Memphis. Uh, and then after the Civil War, the, when the yellow fever epidemics hit Memphis in the 1870s, well, at that time, people with means left the city. And so there was a mass exodus of people with means being white folks at, at, the, at the time. Those people left and didn't return. And so Memphis became a majority black city you know, around 1880. And it was black entrepreneurs who helped to rebuild the city. People like Robert Church, who became the one of the city's biggest real estate and business investors, you know, the, is one of the reasons that Beale Street became a, a, a central um, hub of, of, uh, of African-American culture, um, created the Solvent Savings Bank. And, you know, so people like that are important to the history and what makes us unique. We make sure that our students know about Orange Mound being the, the first African-American neighborhood in the nation to be built by and for African-Americans. We make sure they know about the worldwide cultural influence of stacks and American soul music. And we make sure that they know that it's, we're not just a, a majority African-American city, even at the, at the metro area level, the city and its suburbs, we are a, a majority minority metro area. And there's not, not a whole lot of those. There's, there's only kind of a handful of, of places like that. So, you know, we try to emphasize those things um, in the curriculum to help our students understand the context in which uh, we, we're operating, in which we work. And framing them, you know, as assets and opportunities Absolutely. Yeah. Not, um, not you know, things to worry about. Yeah. We, we want to build on what's unique about our, our culture. Well, the, um, so do you think the, that the fact, I mean, you mentioned the, um, you know, Robert Church and the Orange Mound, but do you, do you think the fact that Memphis has been majority African-American for a good part of its history. Has that shaped how the city's grown and developed at all, do you think? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously there are large periods of time when that majority African-American population was not treated <laughs> treated well. Um, and I mean, you see the effects of redlining um, across the city uh, and in neighborhoods uh, where people lacked access to opportunities to create wealth. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of those negative impacts are there. Um, but I think it's, I think it is, it's something that creates the the flavor of Memphis and people that spend any time in Memphis know that it's, it's got a different feeling than a lot of other places. And I, and I think that has to do with it. It does. It does. Yeah. I think that's, it's, it, it's the, it's an intangible, it's an intangible brew of, ingredients that makes Memphis feel different from other places, but, um, but the way it develops and, and some of the folks that were involved. Yeah, I agree with that. So, okay. So, so I guess it's, um, last question. Um, and I don't know whether this affected, um, planning or not, but, you know, there was a recent effort to university offered a pool of grants for professors and departments to incorporate uh, diversity, equity, inclusion into the cur- their curricula. And unfortunately, the state shut that down. That was, seemed like a great opportunity. You know, grants are incentives. It's certainly, that's not a requirement, but 
Anyway, did, did were you? Um, sounds like you already had incorporate have incorporated a lot of that into your curriculum, and I don't know whether that affected or do you, if you have any. Um, we don't have a lot of time, but if you have any sort of parting thoughts about that, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a shame, and it, it was part of a much bigger effort um, that the university had put forth. That you know, there was a whole fourteen working groups working on different approaches to eradicating systemic racism. And there was one working group that was thinking about how to include diversity, equity, inclusion in, in the curriculum. Um, and, you know, people talk about it in all kinds of weird ways in, in the Fox News world about this being a, a bribe and, and, you know, liberal woke, wokeness or whatever they want to call it. But the reality is that people get we've, we've been teaching whiteness as the norm for forever, right? We've been getting paid to do it that way. Um, and so re recreating a, a course takes some effort, right? And so giving somebody $2,000 to spend that time over the summer redeveloping their course, uh, it's not a bribe. I mean, it's getting it's getting paid to do extra work that you wouldn't have been, would not have been doing. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's got more meaning or more value to different disciplines. So again, for us, um, for, for departments like ours or sociology or anthropology or social work, those things are already built into to what we teach because it's so critical. Um, but if you're a professor of physics and you want to think about how do I talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, you know, that's a much, much bigger challenge. Uh, and so that's one way to help. And I don't know, I'm not even sure that that's the best way to help. I mean, it might be, we might be better served by having uh, an office staff with professionals that know how to do that that can do it and tell the physics professor, you know, here's some tools that you can use because the physics, physics professor is trained in, in physics, right? Not in, not in uh, equity and inclusion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's ridiculous that uh, the state shut it down. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to regular commentator, Dr. Charlie Santo from University of Memphis. And I will see you again on the screen very soon, Charlie. Thank you for All coming. Right. You bet. Thanks, Emily. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.